This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in Deuteronomy. Welcome Welcome to the club. Welcome to the final episode of Deuteronomy. But last episode, we were in chapters 32 and 33, and Moses is rapidly approaching the end. He blessed the people. He started with a blessing for each tribe, but he paid special attention to his own tribe, the tribe of Levi and the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, which is a little unusual because normally Judah gets top billing because that's where Jesus is going to come from, the tribe of Judah. Moses totally omits the tribe of Simeon. The tribe will be scattered in the territory of Judah because unlike the tribe of Levi, tribe Simeon never redeemed themselves from their forefathers' sinful past. And lastly, Moses blesses the nation, reminding Israel that God is their refuge and that no one is like them, a people saved by the Lord. This episode, it is time to say goodbye to Moses. He has said all he has to say to the Israelites. He has labored in the Lord's service for over 40 long years. And his job was frustrating and filled with difficulties and delays. He was not perfect, but he was faithful and he followed through to the end. Well, the nation is gathered before him, probably fearfully hanging on to his every last word. Then Moses, the only leader these poor people had ever known, still strong in mind and body, turns away from the nation he has led and loved and begins one last mountain climb. Not up Mount Sinai, which he climbed over half a dozen times, and not up Mount Hor, where he buried Aaron. But in chapter 34, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give it to your descendants, I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. There is a lot of information and instruction in the Bible. But there is also intimacy, love, and illustrations of the relationship that God desires to have with us. This is one of those illustrations. This must have been a really sweet moment. Think about any important walk you might have made. A walk down the aisle to get a degree, a walk down an aisle to get married. Think of people watching you, proud of you, tearing up at the sight of you. This would have been so much more than any of those. Think about the picture Moses's climb must have created. The people, two million people, watching from below that familiar form of Moses making a climb for the very last time to meet the God he so faithfully loved. And think about God, his proud father, watching from above the familiar form of Moses, making a climb to meet him for the very last time. Moses was loved from below by millions and from above by his God. 
I imagine there was a lot more conversation between God and Moses when he got there on that mountain than what is written in this book. For God has the heart of a parent, and I am sure God's heart was so full of compassion for Moses because he could not see the land he fought so hard to attain. Remember, Moses asked several times for God to change his mind about that, and he didn't. In fact, I'm hoping that standing up on that mountain, God took Moses on a virtual reality tour of the promised land. Certainly, he deserved at least that. Even though it says Moses was on the mountain looking down on the land, which implies a distant view, maybe God gave him a vision also of the people living in the land and what it might look like, enjoying all that milk and honey. I hope God made it so real that Moses could actually taste it. Because after all, that poor man had had nothing but manna and quail for decades through no fault of his own. Whatever happened in this bittersweet mountaintop moment, I know that God was proud of Moses. And I am sure there were many well done, my good and faithful servant words of praise from the father to this faithful son. Verse five, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, died There in Moab, as the Lord said, he buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Moses died at the word of God and not a minute before. Moses was not sick. He was not weak. He had just climbed almost one mile up a mountain alone by himself. God showed him the land, and then Moses died just when God wanted him to. And then God buried Moses. No one knows where, but somewhere in Moab in the valley. Nowhere else in the Bible does God personally bury someone, only Moses. So the only other clue about Moses' mountaintop departure is at the end of the Bible, right before Revelations in the book of Jude, verse 9, where we find this random and mysterious comment. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, first. Let's break this down um, because I had, I, I'm sure I've read this before, but it never yeah, but it ain't out of computed. context. Right. First, who is the mysterious archangel Michael? He is the only archangel, which means chief angel in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the angel is called a chief prince in Daniel 10. So Michael's called a chief prince. And he stands with Daniel against the forces of the enemy. In Daniel 12, the angel Michael protects Israel. In Revelations 12, he leads a war against the dragon or Satan. In Jude, Michael opposes Satan, where we can read the only words the angel is ever recorded saying, the Lord rebuke you. But what is the angel opposing Satan about? Well, Michael appears to be the protector of Israel against paganism. Satan, it is assumed, wanted Moses's burial to be known to use Moses's burial place as a temptation to the Israelites to worship Moses and make his burial place a shrine of idolatry. 
a good reason to be sure, for we know if the Israelites could worship a calf, surely there was an excellent chance they would worship Moses. Well, and that's just the enemy's MO. Just I'm going to confuse them so much that they'll just do whatever I want. Yes. So he's arguing with the archangel. He wants to know where Moses is buried. Now, from Matthew, we read another reason that Satan may have made a grab for the body of Moses. He opposed Moses's body being raised, which we can assume happened because Moses appears with Elijah at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I just left that verse four in there because I always get tickled when I think of Peter like being stunned at the transfiguration and he doesn't know what to say. So he says something really silly like, let me build you a shelter. (laughs) Like, what do they need a shelter for? Okay. So why was Moses at the transfiguration? The answer may have something to do with his body. Um, The pulpit commentary, which was my favorite on why Moses and Elijah were there, says that why these two saints were chosen to be present on this momentous occasion may be explained by various considerations. Both these worthies experienced something unparalleled in their departure from this life. Elijah was taken up to heaven without dying. Moses died, but he was buried by God in an unknown grave, and his body was under the special care of Michael, the archangel. And we know not that Moses' body saw corruption. So then here's another reason. From the unseen world, these men were brought to do homage to the Messiah at the transfiguration. Moses, a representation of the law, and Elijah, a representation of the prophets. Together, the principal supporters of the old covenant, honoring him, Jesus Christ, who was introducing the new covenant, which was to fulfill and supersede the old covenant of the Old Testament. So does that make sense to you? Heather's looking confused. I just feel like right now you're talking in really confusing words. (laughs) Okay, because I was reading somebody else's words. Okay. So here's the gist of it. What Michael the archangel said, rebuke you, we kind of get the implication that Satan was making a grab for the body. Was it because he wanted to tempt the Israelites to worship Moses? Like if they knew where it was, they'd probably build a big shrine and sooner or later they'd be worshiping the God of Moses. Um, Or possibly it was also God buried him because he had a plan for Moses's body. He was going to raise it up prior. In other words, Moses didn't get to see the promised land, but maybe he was going to let him go in later. He was he was taken up into heaven then instead of being raised later. Um, in the second coming. So, and that makes sense because Moses appeared with Elijah at the transfiguration. Are you saying you don't think Moses is up in heaven right now? No, he already is. Yeah. He already is up in heaven. Yes. Yes. And he appeared with Elijah. So we know Elijah never died. Yeah. He just was taken up into heaven. If Moses was raised and that's why his body can't be found or whatever, again, these are mysteries we don't understand. 
perhaps that's that Moses appeared with Elijah at the transfiguration is why we don't, God didn't want us to know where the body is because the body can't be found because he raised it. Yeah, that's heavy stuff. It's heavy and it's mysterious and there's lots of commentaries about this. However, it is cool that Moses and Elijah were at the transfiguration because they represent the law and the prophets, the old covenant. So here the, you know, it's, is Jesus and he's seeing these two people with, with Peter, who's so funny, um, because Jesus replaces the old covenant with the new, but we know that the old covenant, the new covenant is built on the old covenant. So bottom line is it's, an interesting mystery that we won't know till we get up there. Um, and there's just a few funny comments like in Jude about, I rebuke you. I'm not going to tell you where the body is and nobody can know where the body is and who knows. Okay. Moses, on top of all that, was a remarkable example for us um, about dying. As, as much an example in dying as he was in living. Because first, Moses was ready to die. There were no arguments. There was no self-pity. And perhaps that is because he had had a clear purpose for his life. And that was done. He had done it. His job was done. His purpose complete. Um, And this would be freeing, not frightening. To know that everything you had lived for, had been called to, was complete, has to be a really good feeling. Yeah, or he was just sick of these grumbly, complaining Israelites, and he was tired of climbing that mountain up and down. (laughs) Exactly. Moses could feel good about being free from responsibility for the first time in decades. Free from the burden of millions of people, free from the responsibility of this wayward nation he always had to lead, and the responsibility of leadership, where he was caught between the God he loved and the people he loved that were so at odds with God so much of the time. Uh, After placing the heavy mantle of leadership onto Joshua's strong shoulders, Moses may have actually powered up that mountain to meet God. He may have been, yes. I'm done feeling better than he had in years. Second, Moses is an example for us because he was not afraid of death. He teaches us that we have no reason to fear dying. It is one of the few things we all have in common. We are all born and we all die. And in between, we all get one life, but that's a totally different life. The only thing we have every single one of us in common is our bookends, birth and death. Every journey in between that is different. Birth, we get to share with our mother. Life, we get to share with other people. And death, we share with our heavenly father, just like Moses. We will ascend to meet the one who created us in the beginning. And just like Moses, if we have a relationship with with the God we are about to meet, we should not be afraid either. We should go joyfully, relieved, excited that we get to leave behind the burden of this world for the peace and joy of the next. Okay, moving on. Verse 8, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown 
the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. All those signs, all those wonders in front of all the officials, there's a lot of all there. Is there no better epitaph for a tombstone than what was said here? Yeah, but he doesn't get one because we don't know where it is. (laughs) Okay, Debbie Downer over there. (laughs) You're right. Good point. Touche. But here's what what you just said. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was like no other man before him or after him. So what was the secret to his success? I don't think there was just one because he made mistakes, but he learned along the way. Moses's success was a complex recipe of commitment, courage, humility, patience, trust in God, transparency, and faith. And we know from Hebrews 11 that the greatest of all these was faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then the next few verses of Hebrews go into those ancients like Abraham and Sarah. Who we all know very well. Who we all know because we've talked about Genesis. So we're going to skip to verse 23 where he starts talking about Moses. Verse 23, by faith, Moses's parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So it isn't any wonder that Moses had great faith because it was bred into him. He was born into a time when his very life depended on a miracle. His mother had great faith. She put him in the river rather than keeping him in the safety of her home because her faith in God was so great. She trusted God to keep him alive. Hebrews 11 verse Verse 24, now by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So his faith continued. And when he was grown up, it was so strong. By faith, Moses refused. He rejected wealth, comfort, and power because of his faith. Verse 25, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, Moses chose something different. He turned and took a different path. And it was a difficult one that he chose. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. By faith, Moses regarded something else as better, what he could not see and considered to be of greater value than everything before him. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, Moses looked ahead. Rather than being distracted by the pleasure around him, he was focused on God's purposes. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Moses relied on faith and by faith, he lived without fear. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, Moses persevered because his eyes were fixed on the invisible God. Verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, Moses kept the Passover, the abnormal, the concept that others would struggle to believe. Putting blood over your door, what, what? Even though others might think he's crazy. Verse 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By this time, his faith is so great that nothing stops him. By faith, Moses saved his people with his back to the sea and an army on his heels. 
Moses had enough faith in the face of impossible circumstances to save others. By faith, Moses did all these things, and his story of faith landed him in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where his actions of faith are recorded in detail for eternity and certainly for the benefit of all of us. The book of Hebrews is not the only place where Moses is mentioned. In fact, Moses is mentioned 803 times in the Bible. 85 of those times are in the New Testament. In fact, there is only one person mentioned more often than Moses in the New Testament, and that is Jesus. The fact that Moses is mentioned in the New Testament proves that he is just as relevant to the New Testament as he was to the Old. Jesus confirmed this when he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. In other words, when you from now on, whenever I hear the law and the prophets, I'm going to think of Moses and Elijah. I have not come to abolish what Moses and Elijah did. I've come to fulfill what they said I would do as the prophecy in the future. Moses gave us the old covenant. Jesus gave us the new, and they work in tandem. Do you think, because back in verse 26, it said he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. It's talking about Moses looking towards Christ. Mm -hmm. Do you think that similarly, the way that we learned that Jesus was there in the beginning when God created the world, do you think that on some of those mountaintop visits, Jesus came down with God and was hanging out with Moses for a little while? Oh, I so wish. But I do know that um, Abraham and all the the Israelites were always looking for that promised seed, you know, since the fall that they knew would come through the tribe of Judah. And that's why it's so important why they document the lineage and everything like that, because they were all looking forward to the promised Messiah. And so I think that's why, you know, when God called Moses in the bush and said, you have to save this people. Moses knew he had to save this people because the seed to save the world was going to come through them. And so that's what I think they're implying he was looking forward to. But we'll never know what he saw in that mountaintop experience. You know, Moses gave us so much. He gave us the Torah, the laws, and so much more. In fact, Moses alone wrote 20% of the entire Bible, more than any other author. And with the close of chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, we at Bible Book Club have completed five seasons of this podcast and all five books that Moses wrote, the entire Torah or Pentateuch. However, Moses also wrote just one more chapter, and it's not in the Torah. It's a psalm and one of my favorites. Psalm 90 is called A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And as Heather reads Moses's words in Psalm 90, because I've put them in here so that we can all say we've read every word that Moses has ever written, I want you to think where Moses might have been in his 120-year journey. Think as he wrote this. Think about what he had experienced throughout his life that might have led him to these words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were 
were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by the evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Well, one day we'll get to Psalms in Bible Book Club and we'll, we'll really analyze this because it, it really is beautiful. But it is supposed, just for an overview, I'll give you that this psalm refers to the 40-year sentence in the wilderness. It sounds as if Moses has been out in the wilderness for time and possibly enough time to see most of his generation die because he mentions how people turn back to dust and he is feeling the pain of the consequence they are suffering. Continuing on in Psalm 90, now in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So he opened in verse one and two with a few words of praise, and then he immediately turned to kind of this people turning to dust and days going quickly and, you know, the iniquities. And and then he moves into this, teach us, satisfy us. Despite the suffering through no fault of his own, Moses turns his despair to desire. And he pleads with God, teach us so we may have wisdom. Satisfy us with love so that we may have joy. Make us glad so we may be shown your splendor. May your favor rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. This is the heart of Moses, a man who so intimately knew God and yet so desperately wanted to know more of God, to be filled with God, to have God's favor and to complete God's work. With a heart like that, is it any wonder that Moses was used by God to redeem his people, establish a nation, and write the foundation of the Bible? And that's a wrap of the Bible (laughs) Book Club Season 5 of Deuteronomy and of the Torah and of the life of Moses. Up next in Season 6 of Bible Book Club is the book of Joshua, the first of the history books in the Bible. The history books are fascinating and include all the royals like David, Solomon, and Esther, to name a few, and two of my favorite books, Ruth and Nehemiah. And thank you for being with us on this journey through the wilderness, and we will see you next in the promised land in the book of Joshua. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. 
As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.